You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend Adam Rotman from Secret Capital. Um, and we're here today to discuss uranium, nuclear energy, et cetera. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome to have you on. It's uh, it's my pleasure. Awesome. So Adam, let's kick it off by talking a little bit about sort of your background, you know, how you got into, I guess, the finance world and what's, you know, what's, what's more interesting, you know, how you sort of found yourself um, in this nuclear or uranium focused niche. Yeah. Um, you know, uh I was just an undergrad, uh, like everybody else, that um, kind of thought they had an idea of what Wall Street was all about and that would be fun. And this was kind of the 2006, 2007 period uh, when I was interviewing for summer analyst analyst jobs. And it was kind of like the LBO boom and young investment bankers were way, making way too much money. Uh, and all that looked, you know, really interesting to me. <laughs> so so kind of made my way. Uh, uh, yeah, I was lucky to get... Uh, uh, an internship at a at a at a Wall Street bank, and I didn't last very long. Uh, it was it was not my cup of tea exactly. Met some great people there, but um, wanted to be on the uh, you know investment management uh, side of things. And then was lucky enough to go to work for a hedge fund called Corriente uh, Corriente Advisors out of Texas, uh, mm-hmm. run by Mark Mark Hart. Uh, and and that's kind of uh, the rest is history. It's been the buy side since then. Uh, Corriente and defending cyber capital. Um, uh, Segra was always focused, has always been focused on trying to find, um, you know, largely contrarian or underfollowed ideas that are kind of catalyzed by by macro events or macro assumptions. Yeah, so it's kind of like value catalyzed by macro. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, we were a small firm. I guess we still are a relatively small firm, um, trying to uh, figure out how we were going to make it uh, in a you know world where most hedge funds fail. Um, and uh, you know, we thought that focusing on on one or a handful of things um, in succession, hopefully, uh, was a way to be a differentiator. Um, so we do take big swings um, really on ideas that we think are singularly, or in some cases, a handful of things like the best thing mm-hmm. that exists in the market. And our investors can kind of size with us appropriately, um, but we're a best ideas fund. And currently, not just currently, but for the last three or four years, you know, we felt the best idea in markets, at least markets that we look at, has been you know the underappreciation of nuclear power. A lot of that um, has been um, expressed through trades in the fuel cycle, mm-hmm. um, the the nuclear fuel cycle. Um, but you know, maybe what a lot of listeners do or don't know is that you know, we do a lot of things uh, other than just that um, that are related to uh, nuclear and and other energy. So um, yeah, in a nutshell, I think that's it. And uh, pardon everybody, my voice is like a little messed up. I'm, I'm coming off of a, of a nasty bug. So <clears throat> apologies. No, 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 um, no worries. And anyone, this is awesome. And so Corriente became Secret Capital. Is that what you said? Okay. No, no, sorry. Um, Corriente uh, is, is, is still run by Mark Hart, uh, but I, I worked there and actually Mark uh, was kind enough to seed uh separate capital uh when i launched in 2013 got it got it and and since 2013 you've sort of been following the nuclear or the the uh, uranium sort of world actually it it goes back a little further than that um so actually when i went to go to work for corriente um they they had a a rather large commodity book um Mm -hmm. commodity equities some credit um, and in 2007, 2008, actually some fuel cycle names, um, both enrichment and uranium mining were in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of fell into, we were all generalists there, but that kind of be- fell into my bucket uh, of things to watch. And so we were long uh, in, that, in that period, um, exited well in advance of Fukushima, not obviously by any direct design other than valuation, uh, really. And then um, Segra started looking at it again 
2014, 2015, probably sometime then, you know, maybe we were talking a little bit about it. We didn't have a lot of capital put to work. Um, we, we were very early investors in, in next gen, uh, maybe mm -hmm. not the earliest, but we, we did one of their first uh, financings, um, which was our only uh, uranium position. I mean, I guess that was probably 2014 or 2015, whenever that was. But we were watching from afar, um, really starting to dig uh, deep like we like to do. Um, and I guess, what was it? We, kind of, we were convinced that this was going to be big in 2018. So probably three years of work later, mm -hmm. um, we, we, we said this was something uh, to sink our teeth into. Got it. Got it. Awesome. And, and, you know, I think, you know, to kick it off. So one thing that's that I guess all our listeners should, uh, all our listeners are probably aware of is sort of the um, overall case for for owning uranium or for owning yeah. nuclear stocks. And so, you know, it's, it's mainly negative CapEx over sort of the last decade-ish and um, yeah. sort of the large, app, uh, the large application sort of uranium within the transition to um, a green energy, green energy world. And one, oh, you know, one thing that we observed um, about 17 years ago, back in 2006, was we had a, you know, we had a proper uranium bull cycle, and you know, this, you know, this sort of cycle, you know, we could say is probably started in the mid to late-ish 2010s, and um, and so you know, since it since it sort of started, you know, one, you know, what you know, what has changed since the cycle started? What has changed sort of over say the last 12 to 24 months and you know when you compare this to what happened in 2006 you know well you know what are your thoughts on you know this cycle sort of compared to that one and yeah. you know differences similarities etc yeah that's that's um that's a great question um so the the answer is actually quite complicated because it's, your question is almost like how how do you summarize the way that the buying and selling of the nuclear fuel cycle uh works Mm -hmm. But I think if you were just in simple terms, like what's changed over the last 12 to 18 months is that the market has shifted. This market is kind of hyper-cyclical. Long-term contracts, re relatively heavy inventories are always run, given that these are now 60 or 100-year-long assets. You can't run out of fuel. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of novices don't quite understand how to contextualize inventories, how to contextualize contract coverage. Um, but the only thing that you need to know is that Utilities very smartly have a lot of flexibility on those levers because mm -hmm. it's so important that they don't ever run out of material. Yeah. Um, so I only bring up that backdrop because a lot of investors now have looked at this delayed capital cycle point that you bring up and haven't quite been able to reconcile, well, there's delayed CapEx, there are deficits looming in the future, and why that doesn't translate into immediate price action in the market. And I think the gap between those things is probably the most important to figure out if you're investing in the space or the most important to get comfortable with it if you're investing in the space because there are no opportunistic buyers. Like there's no financial buyer, really. I guess you have Sprott right. now, some hedge funds, but historically and certainly relative to other commodities, there's very little speculation. Um, there's still a lot of opacity. Um, mm -hmm. And I... All of that is to say that over the last 12 to 18 months, a spot, the spot market, which make no mistake, is generally a surplus disposal. It's when there's extra material, it gets shown into that market versus into contracts. As that surplus, surplus started getting eaten away, we had more price discovery in the spot market. Like that's if we're talking about the actual like spot market dynamics. Probably more importantly is starting last year, you, you started to see contracting pick up in a material way um, from Western uh, buyers, <clears throat> Western utilities, essentially, um, making it kind of one of the more important contracting years in, in several years, which over the life cycle of the cycle is what we, we really should all be looking at um, to incentivize new production uh, and everything yep. else. So that's like if we're actually talking about the commodity. Those two points, I would say, you know, are, 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 are the big changes over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, but then, like fundamentally, if we're talking about, like industry-wide, you know, what's happened in the last eighteen months for nuclear is, is kind of what we were hoping for, like in our wildest dreams. Uh, as people who, uh, are my partner Arthur says this the best, you know, are are um, climate change believers, solution skeptics. Um, that was the heart of our thesis, which is that you know the rhetoric around I wouldn't call it climate change, uh, but but around how our the trajectory of our energy policy. Globally, um, we thought the solutions that were wildly held to be 
consensus for fixing those problems uh, were wrong and couldn't be achieved. And specifically, couldn't be achieved without a refocus on nuclear. And over the last 12 to 18 months, you are seeing that in real time, both through the license extensions in the West, new build programs that have been announced, and then obviously now in the background, what we believe is a real um, a, a real commitment to bringing advanced nuclear um, as an option uh, into the market over the next you know half decade or so. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. And so one one um, well, I think one thing that you know we should we should go on and start discussing from here is sort of you know the market for uranium itself. And so. Uh, you know, one thing that's important to highlight is so when we think of the spot market for uranium, so uranium's um has a so typically the spot market implies you know immediate delivery, you know delivery, the sort of today, um but but in the uranium world it's sort of one year out from now, and so when we think yeah. of the so when we think of the spot market supply, so you know how you know how do you sort of how do you sort of think about um you know who's supplying in the market in terms of producers and 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 you know I guess you know. What uh, you know? How how many pounds um are producers actually selling into the spot market each month, um at the moment? And you know, if you want to go into the details of how the spot market works, you know, feel free. So, no, I th- I think we'll almost answer the way the spot market works by by answering your question of like who who's in there. Um, yep. I'm not going to name them by name, but the important thing is that the the, the uranium spot market has. Uh, let's call it dedicated sellers, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. There are sources of supply, both producers that are in certain jurisdictions, but also um, mines that have uranium as byproduct who use the spot market or essentially like a spot linked market to sell their material. And the when we say like surplus disposal, well, that's kind of what we mean or what I mean by that. I say we, some other people, I mean, even a grant from, from Camco, I might might even be have coined that uh, at, you know at some point, but essentially, like material that's not making its way into contracts finds mm-hmm. its way into the spot market, and there is material you know, month in and month out, certainly for every quarter, that will need to find a bid in the market, and especially in the pre-sprot days, you know when there was obviously a very very little speculation. Market was lower. There were no, you know, there weren't really hedge funds or other market participants in the physical market. You didn't have sprout. Prices really were who was showing up on the bid on any given day when there was material. There mm-hmm. are traders and intermediaries in the market, but if you had a large, you know, offtake that was then being sold into the spot market, if it was bigger than traders' risk, or if there was no trader there bidding it at all, you could see some pretty wild moves. And I would even go so far as to say that because there's always, you know, through the down cycle, there was always a consistent stream of supply that would come into the market without a natural buyer, given that utilities were sidelined, not believing in the contract cycle yet, you know, still drawing inventories, et cetera. Like the market was always going to go down. Um, You know, it was a market that all things equal was going to trend down uh, over any given period. And that psychological reinforcement, honestly, is a lot of what has set up the bull run um, goes without saying. It disincentivized CapEx, lower prices, um, almost beget lower prices. Mm-hmm. Um, the uranium cycle, not just now, but throughout history has kind of been one in which prices drop, utilities let their contract coverage drop. Right. They right. also draw on their inventories at the same time because a low market is indicative of one where material is easily available. So we might as well not be in the market. And then all of those factors change, right? And cause rather, you know, kind of violent, you know, upside. And some people, you know, I'm always a little surprised. I guess it depends on when you've like entered the trade. But there's it seems to be like a lot of grumpy nuclear uranium investors around the last year. And like, without a doubt, the broad macro of 2022 was difficult. But like, let's, I mean, let's be clear, like from the bottom of the cycle, where I think a lot of people, you know, should have been doing work on this. You know, the uranium price was like 18 bucks. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's over $50 today. And contract prices are obviously much, much higher than that with, with a lot of volume. When they weren't, the contract prices were virtually flat to spot and were mm-hmm. very thin before. Like, 
the right things are happening here. And the other point outside of 18 to $51, which doesn't matter, is that there are these periods where you do have extreme volatility, you know, where you do see prices gap. And I've said this on, um, I was telling you, you know, Sri, and for everybody listening, like I am pretty selective about these things, especially since we're talking about one topic. People are probably getting pretty sick of me uh, saying the same thing. But like I have said before, and it's important that, you know, the, the, the uranium market in particular, like is one of the layers, you know, there are levels where supply come into the market. Yeah. You have to chew through those layers. Sometimes we do it quickly. Uh, sometimes it takes longer. And then there are gaps. And <clears throat> I think that's what's going to happen again you know, in the future. I mean, we are setting a new base here. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of demand in the mid to high 40s. I don't think there's a lot of supply uh, until the mid to high 50s. And then again and again, and we reset new levels in this market. Um, I just, I think there are a lot of people that invest here that think like they certainly thought, uh, I guess in like November of 21, that we were about to see like $200 uranium like within a month. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's impossible. It was probably impossible in November. We actually you know, wrote a, a blog post on this. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's it's very likely and it's actually probably bad for the market. So what we what, what I think we should all be looking for is kind of stair steps, chewing through different levels of supply that comes into the market, continuing to focus on real end user demand, circling kind of the hoop, which they have been over the last 12 months. And then really, you know, and yeah, you know, and, and I, I said this recently, like. We should be disappointed. We as investors in the space should be disappointed when replacement rate purchases, I won't even say contracting, but Mm -hmm. between the spot market and the contract market for delivery equals demand, but you're replacing it. If we're testing the bounds of that amount of demand and prices aren't moving, then the thesis is busted. But everybody who's out there who's built a supply demand model for, for replacement rate contracting and saying, if the, you know, 415 growing reactors globally need 190-ish million pounds. If you're buying 190 million pounds in a given year and the price isn't moving, that's a problem for the thesis. If we're buying 80 million to 120 million in a market that can supply that and we're still going up, that's also a good thing. And that's kind of what's been happening, yeah. um, right? Like the market has been balanced in terms of what's being purchased and sold. And, and actually, we're still rising in that environment. So sorry, I kind of rambled there. But um, that's just addressing this idea that this is like a waiting for Godot situation. Like, it's mm-hmm. not. Everything is happening the way it's, it should be. Um, and, and setting up very, very well for the coming years. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think one you're 100% right on that. And, you know, one of the things that you sort of um, discussed in one of your uh, previous commentaries that you've published on uh, the Secular Capital website is, Know that is sort of you know what you call the spot supply that no one talks about, and so you know while people are aware of um of the of this idea that you know there are these various prices or these various levels at which you know different suppliers come in and different producers come in, you know, and supply um uranium to the market. You know, there's a, there's there's a few things like trust units for physical, um uh, you know block trades as well as you know con- uh, utility contract structures and you know various flex options within those contract structures that. Yep. That affects supply, and then three. What I thought, what I found really interesting was, you know, what you call carry trades, um, within, uh, the uranium market. So, you know, could you, could you, could you jump in and talk a little bit about about what these are, and you know, how much these matter? Yeah. Well, well, well. One, the 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 biggest point I think from what you bring up is that, and this is I think what we do differently, like at Segra, um, if I'm if I'm being just frank, is that this is a very complex market. Like this is not as simple as what is spot doing on any given day, and then should we buy or sell equities? Like exactly, and I think you this know? is super under discussed. So I think this is something that's worth bringing up. Yeah, I, I and I think you're spot on. Like in asking the question, like one spot is the lesser of the of the two prices. Like sure, I mean if the market chooses to focus on that, we have to be conscious of it. But let's you know be clear that like through a cycle. You know, contracting is what's driving business models and mm-hmm. supply decisions, uh, ramp or up or ramp down, et cetera. The fuel cycle, the components talk to each other. You know, what's happening in the spot market cannot be looked at in isolation or, or, or I should say U308 prices cannot be looked at in isolation. 
it's very important what the conversion markets are doing and what the enrichment markets are. And all of that together kind of holistically then ties back to your question on like how this stuff is actually being procured and where different pockets of supply are coming from. And it's not as simple as XYZ mine is making this, putting it in the spot market, and then there's a buyer meeting. Um, I think honestly going through the dynamics of everything, like you know, forward selling, carry trades, um, carry trades that are naked, carry trades that are, are covered is probably like a little complex to go through here. But what mm -hmm. I would what I would say is that general generally speaking, the carry trade is becoming less impactful in this market. When there was excess supply and significant excess supply, um, traders or intermediaries in the market could receive spot, sell it forward to a um, to a utility, essentially hold the material, right? Promise to deliver it on intervals that were usually escalated at about the interest rate curve and make a nice little spread doing it. First of all, they bought the material at a discount versus the market. They mm -hmm. get to sell it forward and either they carry it or in some cases they would sell that too and take the money and then try and buy it lower in the market. But eventually they just delivered it to their utility counterparty. And the, the big, the impact of that, sorry, is that those carries were done for on a less than five year tenant. Oftentimes it was two or three years. And as you know, and as many listeners probably know, like for a big mind decision to be made, like whether you know MacArthur River would come back to camp go, two or three years of supply contract certainty was never enough, mm -hmm. right, to de-risk those larger capital decisions for a company like Camp or honestly, even a company like Kazadenprom, or whether or not Paladin would bring back Langer Heinrich, et cetera. So this was very much a market that was fit for the trading community. Um, it served a very good purpose. I mean, it was to the benefit of utilities, right? They were probably getting lower prices with some sort of certainty. Yeah, one, two, three years out, most yep. of it, but still some delivery certainty. As the spot market you know, tightened up, though, and you didn't have these excess pounds that could be sold at a discount, carried forward. Uh, frankly, as the interest market rate markets got more volatile, this source of delivery for utilities is kind of gone. So it's a little less relevant. I do think that at the end of 2021, you still saw, and when you're talking about that, that commentary that we penned, you still saw some market dynamics to where you would see material come back to the market if we moved too fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which would, which would, in our mind, you know, this again, when we wrote that, the consensus was that we were kind of going to $100 plus in the spot market relatively quickly. We mm -hmm. thought there would be all these speed dampeners in the form of these technicalities in the market that would stop that. A lot of that has been washed out though now over the, the next year. So I think it is a cleaner market for a rise should you see spot market demand, I guess is the, is the long and the short of it. Um, you know, hard to say exactly what it'll look like because it, you know, we're very tied into the market. We, we you know, daily, certainly multiple times a week, are testing to see, get our best estimate of what the structures in the market look like. But our best guess right now is that it's pretty clean, um, and that you know any any real demand coming should have a sustained move higher. Mm -hmm. Yep, and I think you know one of the one of the things that's interesting is um, so so on that note of supply. So you know one of well you know one of the points that provides a case for investing in uranium is that you know, supply sort of disappeared and there and uh, sorry uh, sorry prices went low and therefore supply disappeared and sort of sort of the inverse uh, the inverse of that is when prices go up um you know supply starts to come back so you know sort of how high you know can uranium go before supply comes back and before you start to see boosted capex etc well you know one thing that i think porous in the market you know who, who must not be modeling honestly like supply fall back on is this idea that you know that care and maintenance assets um, and or Kazakh nameplate capacity ramp is a cure-all for this delayed capex cycle? Like essentially, like you solve the deficits, right? Like, don't you have idle capacity that comes back on that kind of blows the thesis up? And the answer to that, like, is just no. I mean, I, it's been rehashed by so many different people now at this point. It's not worth going through, but like ramp up all that, ramp up all of Campo supply all the Kazakhs nameplate capacity, bring back, you know, any licensed brownfield 
honestly, bring back development assets, big ones, and you still have a constrained market, at least in the way that we look at this. So one, before anybody talks about it, like that's taken care of, it should be in the model. Mm-hmm. But the second, the second more practical thing that I think we're seeing a lot of now, which is more interesting, it doesn't just apply to uranium, but I'd say it's more difficult in the term of uranium, is that supply is actually technically difficult to bring up. You know, Campo obviously brought back MacArthur River, but you saw them slide down um, cigar production so that mm-hmm. they could ramp MacArthur. Company narrative, and certainly some, this is true to some extent, is that they were still being prudent about placing material in the right hands. But make no mistake, some of that are just the growing pains of challenged supply chains, challenged workforce, et cetera. And if you didn't believe it when Campco said it, you know, CAP, because um, Adamprom just gave their um, kind of uh, operational update, their mid-quarter op- operational update, and a huge production miss. Yep. You know, so again, like if you go back a year or two ago, especially mining generalists, just kind of lazily were like, well, you know, because Adam Prom can essentially ramp as much material as they want. They have an endless amount of material to tap into. Actually, they haven't even ramped back to their full subsoil use um, uh, 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 supply capacity. And they're having trouble doing it because they've got sulfuric acid shortages, because they have pipe shortages, because there are yep. labor problems like there are globally. And again, this is not a uranium get your uranium specific issue, but uranium mining in many cases is more complex. In many cases, it is competing. The, the labor force is competing with bigger and mm-hmm. frankly more, not more profitable, um, um, more more impactful industries like oil and gas, like to a country's economy. And that means that we should all be very cautious in what we put into rampability like over the coming years, because we're gonna miss, like we've always missed, we're gonna miss here, it's not easy. And the two best producers, Campo and Zamprom, have just given you the proof in the pudding that it's gonna be challenged um, and that we can't snap our fingers. Yep, the, the uh, Kazatomprom um, production miss was sort of gonna be my next question. And I was gonna ask you if you had um, sort of any insights or any views on that. And, you know, we've sort of heard about these disruptions since when COVID sort of started. And yeah. um, and so, you know, do you, do you know, do you have anything to say or do you have any insights specifically to that? Um, I know you mentioned that's not a nuclear specific issue, but it's just, you know, something that you would uh, or that you would you would expect more and more. You know, I don't think I, we, we obviously know the company well and we know the industry well. Um, I don't think I know anything that other people don't know uh-huh. necessarily, but piecing the dots together, it doesn't seem like the market was focused enough right on some announcements that Kazadam Prom had made. They had, the company had indicated that they want to build their own domestic sulfuric acid plant. Doesn't mm-hmm. seem like anybody pieced together why, you know, a uranium miner that has had ample access to sulfuric acid historically wants to spend a few hundred million bucks building their own plant. It was a sign that that part of the market was tight. It was getting tight at the same time as their domestic oil and gas industry was ramping, meaning that the writing was on the wall, right? The sulfuric acid was a problem. We actually had written about that. Um, piping problems, um, pipe shortages for ISR globally has been flagged in a lot of instances. Yeah. But again, like the uranium market is not the most sophisticated. Like, I don't think you have a lot of mining dedicated guys that are really deeply looking at this. The read through should have been pretty, pretty clear. And so um, I'm not banging the drum saying, like, you know, that it was, that we had, the, well, actually we did, we, we called this, um, we did. We, we, we thought that they would miss, we thought ramp would be difficult. Um, and I think it is probably gonna be challenged in 2024 as well, um, until, uh, you know, the best case of getting their domestic sulfuric acid plant up in, or sorry, they have domestic, but because Adam Prom's own sulfuric acid plant up in 2025. Gotcha, got it, got it. And, um, and so you know, on the you know on um on that note of sort of the Kazakhs, um you know what is sort of the ability, and I guess this is a more broader question, but what's sort of the ability of the West to um to sort of replace Russian sourced uranium or to replace um Kazakh sourced uh, Kazakh sourced um uh uranium overall? Because you know one thing that we saw, you know, for for example, after Russia invaded uh, invaded the Ukraine, you know, we had um Europe experienced a large deficit in energy consumption, you know, partly self-imposed yeah. through sanctions, et cetera, but also partly because Russia um in that being sanctioned you know, has no incentive to supply them. And so, you know, what is the ability of the West to sort of replace that? 
Um, well, let's take one at a time. And sorry, I think I'm gonna turn the light on here. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if it looks dark to you, but it just got dark all of a sudden. So uh, let me see if I can. Sorry, let's get a light on here. Apologies, everybody, for the way here. I think should be able to do this. With or without light, you know, you look, it, it, it's it's looking great, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Very kind. There we go. I think that, that, that'll be a little bit better. Um, let's get this set up there. Um, yeah, so uh, Russian-sourced uranium, I mean, U-308, is not a huge part of the market. Let's say like maybe 6% or so, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look on, on a conversion and enrichment basis, that's where it starts getting very impactful. Um, you know, 35 to 45% of the global market, um, depending on how you're calculating it, whether you're talking about conversion or enrichment, is a big, big deal. If you had, you know, a direct Western sanction on Rosatom, like, hey, no more, um, it, 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 it would have some significant shockwaves, you know, uh, for the market. Um, the global utility lobby has been very against this, um, given how big a piece of the pie um, Rosatom is. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not going to put a probability on it, but we've always been cautious, you know, in trading that that probability or that risk that you have a overnight sanction announcement. You know, I, I think that could end up being a double-edged sword in some ways. Yep. But what we do feel pretty strongly about is that the headline moves to creating a domestic fuel supply or let's say like a Western fuel supply is real. And that's mm -hmm. just not, you know, like the thousand foot view. I mean, I think you're seeing it, you know, the committees that were on, um, the political engagement, like there is a real and concerted bipartisan effort, uh, um, effort to bring domestic uranium mining through to enrichment here so that we don't have exposure on a go-forward basis. And I think that even on, if you just look at this on a go-forward basis, it means the enrichment market is going to be constrained. Mm -hmm. um, the conversion market is going to be constrained. In theory, the uranium market becomes even more constrained, right? Like Russia's you know, Russian uranium being excluded on a go forward basis was never in like the uh, was never in the bingo <laughs> in the bingo draw. Yeah. Um, so that's just another. I mean, even if it is six percent or eight percent, I mean that's six or eight percent that's not going to the West in the market that's already tight. Um. So in short, they all matter. Um. The right tail risk to pricing, the bananas move is if we do have some more concrete sanction type uh, action put on Rosatom. And in fact, it didn't seem to be noticed or picked up that much. I mean, I think my partner Arthur might have sent it out to the to, to the internet, but um, yeah, through Twitter. But you know, I mean, a bill is being proposed in many in the, in the House. Um, and it's pretty strong. Like it went to the Senate last year and, and it kind of, and it fizzled, not surprisingly. Again, I don't think we're sitting here saying that a Rosatom sanction is, is coming, but mm -hmm. it, but the political will to propose it, I think is an important read through. I mean, that's, I think what people should be focused on. Yeah. It doesn't matter if we don't sanction Rosatom. The question is on a go forward basis, how do we treat the fuel supply? How do Western utilities treat the fuel supply? And there is a big shift um, over the last 12 months. And that will have an impact on pricing over the next several years. Got it, got it. And, um... And, you know, moving, you know, moving on from just the topic of, I guess, general supply, um, I think one thing that we were talking about when, uh, you know, off the record was, so, you know, one, you know, you sort of run a hedge fund and, you know, as, as part of that, what you've been able to do um, navigating this uranium cycle is, you know, as much as we understand uh, what the bullish case for uranium is, you know, actually managing um, long positions. As they use it, you know, we, you know, you have two uh, tools available to us to sort of manage through the volatility. You know, one is you know option strategies. You have shorting as an option, etc. And you know, and you know, you've sort of been able to successfully do that. So you know, could you share a little bit about how you know you think about actually managing and running positions you know, um, yeah. in the in the you know in this kind of uranium market? Yeah, it's a great question. That's actually not one that has been asked, I think, on any on any podcast. Yeah, so to be clear, you know, we are a hedge fund structure. You know, I mean, I think we're obviously known to be 
uranium fuel cycle nuclear bulls, but you know that the bullishness is a sliding scale for us, and we do short, we hedge, um, and we don't only invest in uranium. Um, so there are other ways to mitigate risk, even through our long book, or to bring beta down, even through our long book. You know, which you know certainly helped us have a, a good year last year um, when you know, benchmarks were down. But without sounding arrogant, you know, the, the difference is that still there aren't a lot of dedicated, you know, buy side investors you know, to the space. And when I say dedicated, I don't even mean you have to run like a nuclear focused hedge fund. I mean, you have to be an analyst that spends a significant amount of, their, of your time understanding this market. Because make no mistake, it is an onion. You know, you peel back a few layers and you realize you got, you have 50 more. And I would say that, you know, the first layer, the tourist layer is, oh man, the capital CapEx cycle is delayed. Spots going higher. We need more mines. Let's buy equities. That's, that's like layer one of the onion. And then in some respects, it can, you can almost get too deep, you know, down the rabbit hole because it is a complex, complex commodity. It's a complex fuel cycle. It's a complex nuclear, it's a complex industry. Um, but I think what we offer people is, you know, dedication um, and honestly, a little bit of tenure. Um, we've, we've been here for a long time. I think we've proven to our due diligence network that we have good intentions. You know, we are investors, but we also kind of believe that nuclear is a solution. We believe that it was overlooked. Um, and we think that it's kind of hitting its stride. Um, we think that there will be dedicated analysts at most funds over the next several years. We just have a head start. Um, and so... Risk management, portfolio management, stock selection, moving into different verticals under kind of the broader energy bucket that we're allowed to invest in, all mm -hmm. comes down to what I think is a differentiated expertise in this particular, um, yeah, in in this niche little little industry. And I think that the minute where we feel we don't have a better finger on the pulse, it was probably when we're winding down our our risk um, and either diversifying our mandate or trying to push you know, heavily into what we think the next best, best trade is. I actually, I shouldn't even say next best trade, next best industry to do a deep dive on because we, we do tell our LPs that we can be long, short, we hedge. It's just that we have a bias to something that we think is misunderstood and we're given the discretion to risk manage around that um, for as long as we think the cycle has to play out, as long as we think there's money to be made. Mm -hmm. Got it. And when it comes to say picking, I'm short ideas to hedge your longs, um, et cetera, you know, what are sort of the considerations that go into or like the investment criteria for doing something like that? Well, you know, I mean, if we're talking about like hedging, you know, and, and you mentioned options and I didn't address that, like the options market is also very inefficient. Here. You know, we, this market goes from extreme pessimism to extreme euphoria in like about two seconds. And not surprisingly, the option market starts to reflect what we think are unrealistic, the vol curve starts to adjust to what we think are unrealistic expectations mm -hmm. on both sides. And so like without telling you exactly what we're doing, um, it has been a great source of alpha generation for us to um, use the option market and what we think are extreme mispricings to our advantage. And we do that in almost any and every way that you could think of uh, for our book. Um, and, I'll, and I'll kind of leave it at that. But we but we do look at that market a lot. Um, you know, we know the Catalyst calendar well. Um, we are, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about in the uranium market are broad correlations, you know, and factors and how it's now getting caught up. Actually, I think your old boss, uh, Mike Green, is an expert on this. Um, and uh, and I certainly you know, not putting myself in his, you know, in his echelon of understanding these things, but it's become a very, it's become a bigger part of our process, you know, is running correlation analysis, factor analysis, seeing indices that we're involved in. And given that we have a mandate to essentially be biased long in this sector, when we think this, things are acting irrationally because some other part of the energy market or commodity market, mining markets are blowing up, we're often the guys that are on the other side and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And 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 so so could you give an example of how you use um stuff like correlations and factors to your advantage? Just just simply because um so, so you know what sort of factors you know the do um, nuclear focused companies or nuclear energy companies go into? They, they, they change. I mean, the short answer is they change a lot, so you have to stay on top of it. 
But what I would say is that it's mostly like when we see factor rotation or correlation that may be hurting our stocks. And that's going to happen a lot. I mean, right, in many cases, we're talking about high beta junior mining um, as, as a part of our book. Like, you have to be cognizant of that. As good as the fuel cycle fundamentals might be, there are going to be periods, sometimes even long periods, where you're just suffering the market. What I think what I what I would say is that our process is trying to identify periods when broad risk, broad factors, broad correlations are affecting our book at an extreme versus what we think is an extreme in understanding whatever might be happening in the fundamental picture for the book. Um, and we don't always get it right, but when you look at our exposures, exposure management um, sliding in a material way, it, it, it's when those extreme, those, those two things are extremes, you know, fundamental view versus market technical factors, you know, kind of creating a gap. Um, and they don't present themselves day in and day out, but usually mm -hmm. a few, few times a year, you get a big crack. Um, and, and, and we do our best to take advantage. Got it. So it's sort of more so understanding how flows move, um, with regards to say, you know, rotate or, uh, you know, rotating from one factor to another. And yeah, flow, flows again, core, you know, Correlation to the extent that that's a little bit different than flows, and and you know whether or not you might be in a factor basket. Also, to be honest, there's a lot of tourist capital that comes in and out. You see that, frankly, a lot in the options market. We are real, really, really fastidious, I guess I would say, about tracking to the best of our ability who is the size open interest and for what reason, you know, in the options market, which can get chunky in a relatively illiquid space. Mm -hmm. Having a handle on that. I think also gives us comfort on pukey on days or months when the sector is puking regressively. How much of it is a fundamental view versus a stop out, a liquidation, capitulation, et cetera? And we're not day traders, you know, absolutely not. Um, and there are many positions that we have not touched in four or five years. But it, you asked about risk management and frankly, sleeping at night in a volatile sector and having detailed information on all of these things, not just the fundamentals of the commodity, not just the fundamentals of the equities that we hold, but even the fundamentals and the technicals of the options market, flows, correlations, et cetera, right. gives us a good picture. That is the mosaic through which we are viewing this market. Um, and since it's really all we're doing, we've gotten pretty good at it. Nope. Yeah, no, this is this is um this is excellent. And one more thing that, you know, one more thing that sort of is, is is somewhat related to this is you know overall you know uranium is sort of a very broad term and so once you dig a little bit deeper you know you sort of have these different um because different aspects of uranium you know when you have say the utilities on one hand the producers on the other and even within producers so you know one thing that came up in one of the conversations we had off the record was stuff like haleu which is sort of a very specific form of uranium that has, you know, broad applications and, you know, small modular reactors, et cetera, and, you know, could potentially be uh, an important form of uranium going forward. And so, you know, keeping that in mind, you know, we're, you know, on a, on a more specific um, level, you know, what, you know, what, you know, how would you sort of bucket or group, um, you know, the various aspects of the uranium market and, you know, where do you see opportunity um, on sort of a more specific level without naming individual companies? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that we're really excited about, to be honest, um, are some of the newer tech and or newer concepts that are rising into like the broader advanced nuclear sphere. We think many of them will be public over the coming years. Um, we've announced a few, you know, a few of them um, that are going public and, you know, that we're anchoring. But, you know, part of our, you know, firm mandate is shifting into doing uh, privates. <clears throat> and what we're seeing is, new fuel designs, uh, new forms of waste storage and disposal, reprocessing, in addition to obviously new reactor designs themselves. And I think like if you're, you know, if you're bullish nuclear or you're bullish energy and you think the Delta nuclear is, you know, in nuclear ads is kind of mispriced in the market, it is our firm view that there are some great companies, the next generation companies for the sector that are, you know, too cheap, you know, we think relative to their, to their impact. And again, that, that really spans everything, I guess, to your question from new fuel designs um, to new reactor designs, to better waste disposal, to better services, you know, to services companies 
um, who are kind of priced still as if this is a market that's going to decline by 30 or 40% in the West over the next decade. And now it's a growing market over the same time frame. And all that switched over the last 12 to 18 months. And we don't think private investors have really caught up to that shift in the macro um, in terms of how they're evaluating uh, these businesses. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. And, and we know one more thing um, in terms of, I guess, newer technologies is, uh, and you sort of discuss this again on, in one of your sector capital commentaries is um, sort of this, this um, prospect or promise or potential of um, nuclear fusion and, you know, sort of, you know, atomic energy and how that actually plays into, um, you know, the, into nuclear energy. And so when you think about that, you know, do you have, uh, you know, you know, do you have do you have any views on you know sort of when that comes to market on a on a on a broad level? You know, are there opportunities yeah. there? Um, you know, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I mean, we think there are opportunities. I mean, I, I I think um, you know, our focus, if you're talking about the kind of new nuclear fission or fusion, is really on how commercial the companies are, how good the business plan is, frankly, to be a commercial viable business. There are certainly some investors, venture investors, energy dedicated investors who you may or may not be able to do a better job of vetting the tech specifically. Um, we are usually looking a little bit later stage where some of the tech is de-risk, but there's there would still be a very, very wide spread in business model, like what different companies are actually trying to achieve. Um, and we, as a firm, would always be kind of trending towards finding the more commercial end user focused advanced company, whether it be fission, fusion, or any services, fuels, et cetera. Um, so tying that back to your fusion question, look, I, we think it makes sense to invest in fusion. We think there, it, it is a, there is a wide landscape now. The fusion you know, market was robust, over, has been robust over the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, it is, in a way that fission is not, it has been embraced, you know, by the clean tech markets, by energy investors broadly, by energy transition, the impact. Fission is still a little bit on the, you know, kind of on the fringe there, um, which frankly we like. But we have made a, a large fusion investment um, in general fusion. Again, it, it's really their uh, timeline to being commercial that hooked us in addition to what we think is a, a, a significant valuation discount to their direct peers in the market uh, because they're a little bit, they're actually a Canadian company. Um, so being out of Silicon Valley has given them, I think a little, uh, or a, a, a large discount. But but I say all that, not being able to put a timeline on this. You know, I mean, in terms of the company we're invested in, in terms of their comps, you know, if we can get a working prototype in the early 2030s, that is a wonderful achievement for mankind. Mm -hmm. um, one, that is past the timeline on when the strongest bite in the fuel cycle is in terms of supply-demand mismatch. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, given that you know we really are believers in broad nuclear over not just the next five years, but decades, um, we really don't believe anybody in the future is going to be shutting down quality working fission that still has time on their license to replace it with anything, fusion or otherwise. So, um, you know, again, like these are 60 to 100 year assets now, by and large. Our view is that they run, you know, barring a maintenance or operational issue, they're going to be running through their licenses. And what we bolt on in terms of new technology, whether it's fusion or anything else, is just going to be additive. We need a lot. Right. When you look at the different scenarios laid out by every credible academic institution trying to model this, we just need a lot of everything. And um, you know, we've certainly said it a thousand times. I think it's becoming closer to consensus. Like wind and solar, even with batteries that we don't have, cannot bridge this gap. It is time that the energy markets start looking towards things that can really start to solve it under the timelines under which we're we're trying to solve it. Even just 2050, yeah. Yeah, even just to be academically um, genuine, you know, because like it's 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 honestly been farcical how we've chosen to kind of ignore facts or cherry pick facts to fit narratives. And what's nice about the energy market or like, I guess, the volatility in energy markets is that I think whether 
you're pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear or, or somewhere in between, the conversation is just getting much more honest. Um, and that's all you can hope for. And I think that's where we're at now. Yep. No, awesome. 100%. Um, Adam, one, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And before I let you go, you know, do you have any closing thoughts or anything you want to share um, with our audience that we haven't discussed just yet? You know, I think I think we've covered a lot. I mean, I think um, I, th I, th I was I um, trying to focus on, I guess, the more, the lesser known concepts or the lesser known ideas within um, within the uranium world. Um, hopefully, you know, I've done a decent job at that. Um, I think I think you've done a great job. I mean, the only thing I'd say to the audience is that uh, I'm very impressed, you know, with with you. I mean, a young person, um, you know, dedicating so much time uh, to, to to learning to being engaged with the market you know that that's a that's a great thing um i wish i'd been as proactive like i said when i was your age and i've no doubt that if you keep at it um, you'll have a lot of success and the second thing is just you know we um we talk a lot about nuclear you know segra capital does but really we're generous investors by background you know i mean our our, our goal is is to be doing this for a very long time yeah. um but to be staying fresh with all ideas and i say that not because i care for pigeonhole pigeonholed as, as nuclear guys. But I say that because I think some people might think that like we're forced to be bullish. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that this is that this is like our, our horse and we're going to ride it to the end. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we still wholeheartedly believe that this is a sector where you can make a lot of money, that we're in the early stages of the cycle. And the minute that we don't think that, um, our business will come. So I guess maybe that would be my closing words. You know, if anyone's skeptical that this is just you know, long-term uranium bulls being long in the two, I can tell you it's not. Awesome. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was great having you on. You can find Adam at Segra Capital, at S-E-G-R-A Capital um, on Twitter. And you can go on his uh, website, segracapital.com um, and read some of his commentaries, which is super interesting. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of deep dives into... Um, lesser known aspects of the uranium world and so that i think i think it's terrific and once again adam thank you for being on <laughs> yeah thanks for having me it was a good time thank you for listening to market champions to never miss an episode make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time